The last of the great human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. And I can extract myself from the suffering because my attitude can trump my ego's frustration about the situation if I lock in power of my mind to choose differently. I'm going to master this thing called teaching. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. And I'm not going to let any human being on the face of this planet stop me, not even myself. And genius is available in all of us in the area of our highest value when we care enough intrinsically to be inspired to go after solving those problems. It's, it's waiting for all of us to do that. We can expand our awareness, consciousness, to expand who we are as beings into this new human being that we're becoming. It's the tension and the contrast that actually helps to push us through to the next level of evolution. Our cells have consciousness and so does the bacteria. So we can also tune into our bodies and, and work with our bodies more knowing that and appreciating these billions of points of consciousness. Now when that change takes place, the momentum that's created in our life from that moment on is monumental insights, the wisdom, the guidance, the direction, the spontaneous goodness, serendipity, coincidence. Things start to work together for good because we're now in a flow of our personal mind, but we're in the flow of the mind of God. Welcome to the Whole Human Optimization Show. This podcast is entirely devoted to the exploration of physical vitality, emotional well-being, and mental fitness. The intention of each episode is to help you discover your deepest truth by ending the cycles of limitation, addiction, and self-sabotage. I am your host, Ronnie Landis, and today we are going to go on a journey into the frontiers of whole human optimization. Let's go. Greetings and aloha, everyone. Ronnie Landis coming to you live on Facebook, and if you're listening to this on our podcast, welcome to another episode, or I should say the first episode of the launch of the Addiction Free Lifestyle Podcast, and uh, this is officially our 200th interview. Um, Obviously, we've had a podcast for the last five years or so, last six years now since 2015. It's gone by different names, um, the Holistic Human Optimization Show, the High Performance Health Show, the official Ronnie Landis Show. And, uh, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of territory over the last six years in the whole world of holistic health. And I don't need to go into the whole story, but I have chosen to rebrand and redirect the message and the theme of this podcast, especially with the new release of my book, The Addiction-Free Lifestyle. And as you can guess, that is the focal point of the message and the theme of my work. And that is also what we are doing in this podcast. So this is a really, really special episode. I have an incredible individual with me. And uh, his name is Mike Giovanni, Michael Giovanni, and he is just a really incredible human being. He's he's a certified holistic health coach and a recovery coach, and he's been involved in the holistic health world as well as the addiction recovery world for the last 15 years. And uh, man, this is going to be a really deep dive conversation. I was just on his uh, podcast about a week ago and that episode released and I was listening to that episode and I was like, wow, this is like an amazing conversation. Um, You know, both just the the flow that we had together and the questions that you asked and the way that it just kind of opened up and specifically on the topic of addiction. um, This is obviously near and dear to my heart. It's clearly near and dear to your heart. It's, it's your work. It's your work in the world. I'm kind of still, still, still new to this work as far as like my main focus but um, I think addiction has affected all of us um, in, in all kinds of different dimensions. I don't think there's anybody listening to this that has not been either directly affected or indirectly, most likely directly and indirectly. And so we're going to get into all that. And uh, before we do, first of all, welcome to the show, brother. Happy to have you. Yeah, Ronnie, thanks for, uh, for having me. It's, it's awesome to be here. And I'm really excited that I'm the first guest for the Addictionary Free Lifestyle podcast. So that's exciting, bro. Thanks for thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's let's dive in. Um, you have quite the story when it comes to your own recovery process. And I know that you your podcast is named Healing or it's uh, what well, is it Healing Beyond Recovery, right? That's the name of the podcast. The Healing Beyond Recovery podcast. That's right. Yeah. And that, that, that title in of itself should spark some, some, uh, some inquisitiveness in people's minds. Let's start there real quick. Well, that title, that phrase really caught my attention, not just beyond recovery, but healing beyond recovery. What, what, what does that mean to you? Yeah. What that means to me, healing beyond recovery is that, you know, abstinence or, putting the substance down or behavior down, addiction down is just really the, the first step. And then there's the real work, which is the work of healing, which I think so many of us are really looking for in the recovery community. We just really don't even know we're really looking for healing, but it's been my own personal journey to experience and find that healing beyond recovery. And after finding that, experiencing that, we can get into that on the show, but that's what I like to, or that's what I'm bringing to the world rather is, is that there's, there's more levels to just recovery per se, or abstinence and recovery is, is, you know, there's a spectrum there. There's a lot you can say what recovery is, what recovery isn't, but really what I'm interested in is, is healing the root, healing the root of the addiction. And that's what I'm bringing to the world as the healing beyond recovery. Okay. Okay. Amazing. So just real quick, or maybe not real quick. What to you, what, what to you is the root of, of addiction in, in the root of recovery? Yeah. So the root of addiction, I believe is, is trauma. It's the disconnection from our true self. And trauma is a topic that's obviously out in the public right now in many different avenues. Trauma, 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 you hear. But really, when you look at it in simplistic terms, with addiction or substance abuse, we're, we're taking something from the outside world and putting it, it inside our body, trying to change how we feel, trying to find some sort of, of stabilization in this nervous system. And when we realize that, yes, these issues are in the tissues, they're, they're in the body, they're in the soma, they're in the mind-body. In fact, the mind-body aren't separate, they're one. And to move this energy outside or to heal and titrate this energy outside of the body and to come back home to ourselves, get reconnected, reunited with the authentic self, that's what I believe is, is the healing. Now, that's a process, and you know, that comes in many different paths, including your teachings, my teachings. I mean, everyone has their kind of approach of how to do that, but to really reunite with the lost part of yourself and to feel comfortable in this skin suit is, and really to be able to be present Right. This is this is the healing. And that's what I've found through my own journey. It's taken a lot of suffering to get there. But um, once again, we all get what we need to wake up. And what I mean, wake up, I mean, to engage in the shift of, of, of our own consciousness. And that's part of the process as well. That's a beautiful answer. So let's dive into your story then. So wh where did this all begin with you? Man, how much time do we have on the show? <laughs> much as we need. Uh, yeah, so my my story is is complex, and there's a lot a lot of moving parts. Um, first, I want to say we all have a story. We've all been through trials, tribulations, and you know we're all, as Joseph Campbell says, the hero of our own story. So, for myself, it started off really in my mom's womb, obviously. But what happened there was that was the first introduction, I believe, to trauma. And I'm not talking about my birth trauma. I'm talking about the trauma my mom experienced that affected me in utero. So I think that set the stage up epigenetically for me to express early onset disease and uh, my nervous system to be affected, as well as maybe set me up for addiction. My sister experienced some of the same life experiences as me. She didn't become an addict. 
She didn't develop disease. So that just shows me that I was affected by what happened. And what happened exactly is, is my mom discovered my dad's secret. My dad was a, a religious figure and she found uh, pornography of the same sex. And at that time, she had a big congregation. My dad was a well-known uh, minister. And my story is even deeper than that. And I, I can share a little bit in depth. Before my father became a pastor or minister, he was a Catholic priest. And the backstory is, you know, he walked into my grandmother's house in full Roman Catholic robes on a mission to marry, on a mission from God to marry my mother. And the Portuguese loving or God loving Portuguese woman, my grandmother is handed this priest off to her daughter, to her daughter, who was 16 years, his junior. So he was like 32, 33. She was 16. And that's that set up this whole situation um, where, you know, he derobed, became, she switched religions, became a born again Christian preacher and started a family. Now, there's a lot of skeletons in the closet, as you can imagine, just when I say the word Catholic priest now, what that entails, what that brings up. And I love to cover this topic because there's thousands of people in this world right now who are suffering from religious trauma, which is part of my story as well. And, you know, my father had allegations of sexual abuse against minors when he was in the seminary. So that was a whole story that wound up coming out and my mom discovered it and opened Pindora's box. And back in the day when that time happened, you know, people weren't really interested in hearing that stuff in the eighties. People were really trusting the voices of priests and uh, doctors and so forth. It's a little different now per se. And you know, no one really believed her. And of course, that set up her for immense trauma. And so the, as the story continued, you know, she wound up losing custody to my, my father. And my father raised us because of my mother's alcoholism. And my father never had paternal instincts. There was no nurturing in the house, right? And, and fast forward, when I was 16, 17 years old, I discovered my father's secret, just like my mother did, same thing with pornography. And so that opened up Pandora's box around the time where this whole Catholic abuse scandal was coming out. And if you can only imagine how terrifying that was for me to be holding up that tsunami tidal wave and that secret that my father was a pedophile priest and how much shame that brought. Now, I don't swim on the surface here, as you can tell, Ronnie, because these issues, although my story may be different than everyone else, the feelings are still the same. The trauma is still the same. The disconnection is still the same. Everyone's father isn't, isn't a pedophile priest, but they have their own story. And this shame, this disconnection, this trauma, this dysregulation in the nervous system, this fear, right, this all of this is what creates that, that disease, which can turn into disease, as we know, and also be behavior changes in addiction. So that's kind of a huge chunk of my story when it comes to childhood trauma. And overcoming that and healing that has been my personal journey. And after experiencing that deep healing, and I'm still on my path, it's my aspiration to support others who are in the recovery community to understand that, hey, trauma is at the root of what's here. And how do we help you feel comfortable in your own skin? Did, did, you, want to, did you want to say something else? Well, it's, I could go on and on. So that was the that was the premise of really that that was at the root of the addiction was the trauma I experienced. Mm -hmm. And moving forward from my journey, that set me up to obviously um, I hit the street early and hanging around with the older kids and I needed something to fit in. I needed something to feel OK. I needed something to ease this pain. So I started off early smoking grass at 11 years old. And then it led to whiskey and ecstasy. And then at 18 years old, I eventually 
met my match with Oxycontins. Mm. And I developed an Oxycontin habit and was doing about $500 a day worth, worth the Oxycontins. And that really was the turning point for me to first admit defeat on this journey of addiction. Other than that, like I thought I was unstoppable. And I reached out for help the first time. My mother came and she was in and out of my life at the time. She was suffering from her own addiction. And she brought me into the doctor's office because I told her I needed help. And my doctor examined me. I sat on the desk, or excuse me, the, the doctor's uh, bed there next to a baby scale. It was my primary, it was my pediatrician office. And he's like, gave me a, you know, analysis and full body workout. He's like, you're all set. And I was like, oh, well, you know, you're all set. You're good to go. I'm like, go where? And he's like, go to detox. And I was like, nah, I can't go to detox. Like detox at the time, this was my thinking was for people that couldn't do it themselves. So I went on the street, I got some methadone wafers on the street, I weaned myself off from a $500 a day habit. And at that time, 30 days sober, I was jumping out of my skin. And I had weaned myself off. And at that point, the whole Catholic abuse scandal came out. And I knew if I could stay sober through this, I could stay sober through anything. And 18 years later, to this day, I haven't touched an opiate. Wow. So that's part of my journey of the addiction. And it was, it was very, very challenging, very, very difficult. But I was at a life or death situation, just like you said on my podcast. Mm -hmm. You have to treat this as life or death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was going to die if I continued to go down the other road. Mm -hmm. So I started a different course. And it still took me two years after that to put down the other hors d'oeuvres per se. I was smoking grass. I was drinking booze. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end, I had, I had homicidal, suicidal thoughts. And I was scared of them. So I reached out again for help. And that was the introduction to becoming completely abstinent from all drugs and alcohol. And that was 16 years ago. Okay. Wow. Wow. That, well, that's incredibly <clears throat> um, thorough. And I, I, I had no idea about those specific details from, from the part about your father and, and his involvement with the Catholic Church and that imprint that it left on you. And then all the other, the, the, substance, the substance experimentation, if you will, that you've gone through and the, the tribulations that you've gone through with that. So that, that gives me a lot more insight into you. I knew that you had a really, a really powerful um, recovery process, let's say, but I didn't know the details of it. So that's, that's, that's like, wow, I'm just kind of taking my, taking a seat back and just, um, and just kind of getting present to that. Um, I, there's like a number of different questions that pop in my head and it's like, I'm, I'm hearing your story in, in a series of chapters. So I'm yes. kind of wanting to kind of wanting to get to certain parts with a question or two. Um, I suppose my, the most direct question that I have is what was the thing or things insights, um, synchronicity, um, uh, a chance encounter? What was, what was the thing that you attribute that allowed you to go from, um, uh, you know, point A to point B, so to speak, you know, and, and I don't, and I know there's like a lot of different instances I could point to, whether it was what you, what, how you overcame, I, this is where I'll start with it. How, how did you overcome the effect of the father wound, so to speak? Um, I can't, I can only imagine, literally, I can only imagine um, what you must have felt or what, what that was like for you. That point, that part in particular is kind of sticking out to me. Yeah. So that, that wound, as you can imagine, was pretty deep. And I'm sorry if I caught you off guard with the oh, no, details. No, no. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's a, no, it's all good. I, I'm not uncomfortable. I just was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So I give you the whole kind of gamut here. And yes, chapters, you're right on chapters. So that would be the chapter, like the chapters of my book uh, would be childhood trauma, addiction, healing from chronic illness, and then spiritual awakening. So going back with my father is, you know, that wound was deep. And I'm sure you guys are wondering, you know, did he touch me? Did he molest me? Well, at this moment, I don't really know. 
there may be some stuff locked deep in the subconscious that I'm not aware of. And why I say that is because I've had the um, privilege of doing MDMA assisted psychotherapy, which brought up some questions. Now, I don't know exactly, but from what I know in this moment, um, it's, it's unknown. But growing up with my father, you know, there was so much pain from my mother being taken away that I, I refused him and I pushed him away. And me and him never really jived because he was so shadowed that I believe he knew that one day, you know, I was going to become a man and, and I could possibly judge him or not accept him or love him or find out about him. So just like he did with my mother is, is cast everything on her and project. He did the same thing with me growing up. So that set the ground for me to be very defiant. So I had my two middle fingers up all the time as a kid with him. And it was really um, only until... my probably 12th year of recovery, 13th year of recovery, did we finally begin to settle the dust more or less when I was really sick and I had a conversation with him that I needed to have, which was me asking him who perpetrated him, who hurt him. And he told me, and he told me I was the first person he ever told this to. And he was in his 70s. And I told him to, obviously, if he was homosexual, go be homosexual. That's, that's fine. Obviously, touching uh, children, that sort of stuff is totally inappropriate. I don't stand for that whatsoever. And I don't think he was engaged in that. Um, I think that was in the seminary when he was confused and was going through his own stuff. But we had the conversation we, we, we needed to have. And I began to heal that and forgive him and to let go of this, this story with him. So that's, that's a process. Mm -hmm. And that's still one I think that's still unfolding within me. Mm -hmm. is, is your father still alive? He passed away a little over a year ago. Okay. Wow. Wow. Um, I, it would seem obvious to me as the outlooker looking in that that would be the, the, the trauma or the wound, the childhood trauma. Uh, I'm sure there's many other things that have happened. I'm just, so I guess I'm asking, is that, is that the inception point for these other compensation habits, these addictions, these, these other things that were, were something of like a medication? Yeah. yeah. Thanks for asking, bro. And, and to be honest with you, I, it's not just one event. I, I've been blessed with a lot of different traumas, but this is when I speak from today, I'm excited because this, the, the severity in the ground that I've had to cover and heal is, is a lot. And it, it makes me that much more um, uh, dynamic or um, versed in, in working with other clients. So I would say, the trauma I experienced in utero set me up. The birth trauma from becoming this aquatic being to now breathing air was a trauma to being um, born into these two individuals I call mom and dad that were extremely traumatized and extremely dysregulated and extremely disconnected was a trauma. Uh, I do recall and have one instance of sexual abuse when I was about nine, which is a trauma. Uh, religious trauma, as you can only imagine, I was born into, I'm the son of a, of a priest, son of a, of a preacher, and uh, that dogmatic Christianity set me up to experience trauma and real disconnection from who I was with this judging God up in the sky. Um, so, the, you know, there, there's so much trauma. Sure. Yeah. So th those are kind of like, um, you know, those are some examples of the complexity of it. And for just for the audience's sake, you may have not have experienced what I have, but trauma is on a spectrum. And as we know, it can be subjective. So guys who go to war can be in the same manhole. And Bob gets PTSD, but Jack doesn't. And they're in the same firefight next to each other. Mm -hmm. So depending upon your resiliency of your nervous system, uh, if you had support in the moment, if you were able to talk about and process, 
like lack of support is one of the main causes of trauma. So if you're listening to this, you're like, holy shit, I didn't have all that. Don't worry. Don't judge my, don't judge your story with mine. Trauma is very complex and it's, it's very individual. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that definitely opens up a few different, few different doors here. So it's my belief that genetics doesn't determine the human experience. It's your nervous system really. And that, that you basically just alluded to that, like depending on how resilient your nervous system is, um, is going to determine whether you subjectively experience any type of event in your life as, as like a traumatic event or, or not. And it's an entirely subjective thing. And that's why we can't judge one person's experience to another. And that's why I also think it's important for all of us as individuals, not to compare our experience to another person's experience. I'm um, saying, well, I haven't been through that. So I haven't been through anything. But that's not really true, is it? And that's kind of, I think that's your point that you're making is that um, we've all been through what we've been through and it's left a mark on us. Um, it may be small, maybe big. And that's, that's based on our own unique imprint, our own unique, um, whatever you want to call it, constitution or incarnation, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I um, mean, it's our part of our unique journey that we get to work this stuff out and evolve beyond it. So that, that brings me to... The next question I wanted to ask you was related to the substances. And so how did you, it's kind of the same question, but how did you navigate once, once you, once you were on the track of recovery, once you, once you were on the path of recovery, how did you start to navigate the, the addiction riddle for yourself? Um, and, and, and what were some of the challenges that you had to work through? Yes. So when I first reached out for help to get off Oxycontins, that was kind of my introduction to uh, getting support for the first time. And shortly after that, reaching out to my mother for help, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. So a 12-step fellowship began to give me sort of some support in, in, in framework or the steps per se on how to work with what was here, this addiction. Now, I don't um, go to 12 step today and I support 12 step if that's the path for you. And it was great for me at the time. And it allowed me to sit at a table and share with people and, and identify and feel support and connection which I think that fellowship is amazing for. And at the same time, today, I have a whole different outlook on addiction per se, that it's not a disease. There's no, there's no disease in your brain that's saying, oh yeah, do this, or that's my disease talking. No, I don't believe that. Um, so that was my introduction to get support and, and I needed that. And that was a great that was a you know great doorway for me to be able to stay sober, let's say one day at a time. And then my journey moved on from there as I began to uh, experience more of life and life, life still needed to give me some great uh, teachings in the form of suffering for me to actually begin to shift my consciousness beyond um, the 12 steps or beyond the typical pathways of recovery. And some of the things that I struggled with was in early recovery and before I started to do my deep work was the inability to get vulnerable in relationships, right? I was a guy that would um, search for really attractive women and I would try to conquer them. Now, this was all subconscious of what I was doing um, per se. Uh, yes, conquering them may have been conscious, but why I wasn't able to stay in a relationship or able to really connect with them was a byproduct of trauma in my nervous system. I didn't feel safe. I didn't trust women, right? Um, if you looked like a woman, smelled like a woman, my limbic system knew that and you possibly could have hurt me like my mother, mm. right? So this is like below consciousness. Uh, other things I was suffering from was just the the hole in my soul that people talk about in recovery. I still had that 
a decade into recovery until I was called back home to myself through the sacred illness. Can I, can I ask you about that real quick? I don't want to interrupt you, but you just mentioned that. And Richard Rudd said that in the foreword to my book. He used that exact phrase. I had never heard that before, the hole in your soul. Um, so w- when you say that you had a hole in your soul, what, what, what can you ex- like just describe what that felt or what that was like for you? Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like the first noble truth in Buddhism. Like life is suffering. Our life has suffering. And there's a constant state of, of dissatisfactoriness, dis-ease, right? And, and I'm, I'm craving always something else other than what's here in the present moment, right? right. right? Even if I'm on a beach, back in the day, full of beauty. It's just something's missing. I have to be doing this. I have to, this isn't good enough. This isn't it. And I'm not it. Something's in that, that, that existential crisis of like, I'm not it. What's wrong with me, right? What's wrong with this world in a way of like, there's a disconnection. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, and, and that comes in all different flavors but it's, it's this longing inside, I think. Got it. So I had to experience a lot of suffering still in long-term recovery for me to shift consciously, for me to shift my consciousness. And that's what I think the recovery community needs. As Gabo Mate says, the cure to addiction is consciousness. Consciousness is freedom. So I began on my journey through the through an illness of coming back home to myself. And that was the pivotal, that was the door opener to experience this much, much, much deeper work, this much more in-depth understanding of myself, the world, and what this what this was really about. And that was through the process of, of awakening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. That, that definitely gives a, a nice, a nice description of, of, you know, kind of the process, like kind of a short description of the process towards recovery. And so when I think of the word recovery, um, well, I'm curious, what, what does that word mean to you? You know, it's obviously used as a colloquial term in the addiction world, the health world, you know, recovering from a health condition, recovering from uh, a divorce, recovering from a financial um, breakdown or recovering, you know, recovering as, you know, whatever, whatever we're recovering from. Um, but what does that word mean to you? Yeah, so early in my recovery journey, the imprint, so to speak, was from the 12-step model, recovering from a hopeless state of mind and body when it comes to addiction. Now, that's a great definition. And trauma is written all over that. And the aspect of we're really recovering from the part of ourselves that was taken away by the trauma, that we're recovering from the lost part of ourselves before the trauma happened, which is that that self. You know, I think in the recovery community, people say, I'm in recovery, I'm recovering. To me now, it means if like, for example, people say, I want more recovery. Well, what does that mean to you? If you say, I want more, I need more recovery, I want more recovery. And what that means today for me is let's break it down for a sec. We're using a substance to change how we feel. We're we're finding, we're trying to find that, that place in our nervous system, that, that, that ease, or we can express ourselves. We can dance, we can connect, we can show up, whatever the substance does for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to regulate that nervous system. And my other hypothesis before I go a little deeper is depending upon how your nervous system was groomed. For example, I was stuck on in sympathetic arousal. So I loved opiates, 
I, I was brought down, right? I was too too high on the on the ladder. I needed to come down, drop down from seventh gear, sixth, fourth, fifth to slow down. Land might land the plane. People that are shut down, disconnected. Maybe we'll call this dorsal vagal from the polyvagal theory with Stephen Porges. Is they may like methamphetamines. They may need to be brought up. They may need to find that 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 uppity uppity because they're so down and out. But anyways, we're trying to find regulation. So needing more recovery today for me, it means needing more regulation, more present moment connection, more stability, more agency in the present moment to be here. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if there, I didn't know if there was more. You, you pause. I didn't know if you had more of that. That was beautiful, by the way. And yeah, the polyvagal theory, the poly, the, the vagus nerve regulation. I, I like this, this term that you use. I want people to highlight this term in their mind, um, self-regulation, right? Or self, um, what's the term? Uh, um, self-regulation, self, um, uh, or, or, or oh, this was self-regulation and co-regulation, right? These two different things were like, having, and I want to get into this with you, like, how do you actually go through self-regulation and teach your clients how to do this? Um, because there's ways that we can actually self-regulate our autonomic nervous system. So the sympathetic and parasympathetic can come into balance, right? So it's not like hypo or hyper, it's, there's an equilibrium, there's a, there's a balanced state. And, um, and then there's also this term co-regulation, which I find interesting that also comes out of that same work, which is that as human beings, our nervous systems are designed to sync up with other human beings. And when we're isolated, then it's kind of like it's a free for all or not a free for all, but it's it's like um, it's very challenging to go through any authentic, any successful recovery process when we isolate. And that's what we're seeing in the world right now. Stand six feet, six, six, six feet apart from each other and, uh, and, and stay in your homes, lock down, wear the mask. The whole thing is isolationism. And we're also seeing a record epidemic of suicide, depression, um, psychological imbalances, like so many different crazy um, psycho-emotional um, uh, um, consequences of this isolationist mentality, and so I want to I want to just kind of bring those two those two topics up. Um, so let's start with the co-regulation thing first, and then we can go we can go into self-regulation um, tactics. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, how, what's your perspective on that? Like, how important is it that people get into community or they, they, they are able to co-regulate with, with other people. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks for bringing this up. And let me give you a little context before I go into that. So when we say trauma, I say trauma is the root of addiction. Well, what I mean by that or how that happens is trauma is what happens inside of you from a situation that's outside. Once again, war trauma, Jack can get traumatized, Billy cannot, so or doesn't get traumatized. So the situation that happens within us from the incident is the trauma. It's, in, it's, it's, the, it's the inside inability to process the emotion, right, in, in the charge of the traumatic event. And that's what gets stuck in our nervous system. So when it gets stuck in our nervous system, that energy is it, it, it gets stuck in there and it can, it, it can reside and, and, and cause all sorts of dysregulation in the nervous system. So you might be hypo-aroused, right? You're, you're, you're down and out, hyper-aroused, anxiety, right? Too much energy in the system, hypo, not enough, down, depression, all that sort of stuff. You bounce back and forth in those, and then you go to the guy in the white coat, and he says, oh, yeah, you're bipolar. Something's wrong with you. But this is a direct response from what happened to you inside of you. So whatever happened to us, whether it's conscious or unconscious, and we, we've sought out substances, we're trying to regulate that dysregulation energetically in the nervous system. So when we begin our healing journey, 
we first have to establish some sort of relationship of safety, of trust. And we do that by co-regulating with another human being in safety, with trust. And we begin to just explore. We begin to live questions. We begin to do whatever type of therapy, therapy or therapeutic modality is, is being offered in that moment. So when my nervous system is regulated and calm and my voice is soft and my facial expressions are, are shown, you know, that I'm happy, you're reading that too unconsciously. You're, you're, you're making assessments below consciousness whether I'm a threat or whether I'm safe. Now, when you grow up in a household, most of us uh, suffer from adverse childhood experiences, right? Those are traumas, more or less, if you look at the ACE study. And we, our caregivers were the ones that were supposed to love and nurture us. They were supposed to protect us. And often, not all the time, but often they didn't. Often they fell short. Often they created or supported the dysregulation in our nervous system. And that happens in all sorts of ways. But coming back to this co-regulation, self-regulation is we, we need to be in safety. We need to be able to trust. And we need to, we do that by doing this dance. Now we're social primates. We're built for connection. We're wired for touch. We're wired to be in close proximity, right? Our brain is a social organ. So right now in the middle of a pandemic, we have everything going against us that supports having access to our higher level of consciousness because we, don't, we can't see people's faces, we're distant. So this is traumatizing in general. Right. So living in this pandemic can be traumatizing for people. So just to give you that little brief intro about the nervous system and trauma and dysregulation. Now, self-regulation happens by first co-regulating and then learning. Or for me, I teach my clients how to self-regulate, how to down-regulate their nervous system through their breath, through orientation, through bringing in their environment through the sense store of seeing, of hearing. We might say this is mindfulness through the practice of meditation, through the practice of breath work, right? And the journey back home is really to ourselves, is into this body. Now you might say, well, well what do you mean? Like, I'm in my body. Well, if you're suffering from the symptoms of trauma, you're disconnected from your, your higher cortical regions of thinking. Right, executive function, decision making, social engagement system. Do you think this is important when it comes to recovery or addiction? Decision making, reasoning, right? No wonder why people in recovery isolate. They still don't have access to their social engagement system within their nervous system. Mm -hmm. So, teaching them through first co-regulation and safety, how to self-regulate is a first step to becoming embodied and releasing this tyranny of the past, this energy of this dysregulation that's present. Now, check out this stat running. According to the polyvagal theory, you have 80% of the information go is going from your viscera to your brain, then your brain to your body. So let me think about that for a moment. 80% of the information is going from here to here, from your body to brain, not your brain to body. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that say? It says mental health is really affect health, is really body health, mm -hmm. right? And the 12 steps are great programs to get, on your, get, get going and, and help you stay sober. But to really heal, we have to come back to this body and begin to discharge the energy that's there and come home to ourselves, come home to the present moment. Yep. Yep. Be beautifully put. Very good. Very well put. Um, and we could go really deep into that whole thing, the gut brain access, how the microbiome connects directly into the enteric nervous system, into the brain and how the feedback system of that works. And I think you made a really good point that everyone should take note of, which is that the body is affecting the mind first and foremost. And my perspective is that the, the mind and the body are actually one in the same. 
Mm-hmm. You're not two separate things. Now we, we might make it two separate categories, physical health, mental health, and, and that's valid enough, right? Like the, the two distinctions are pretty obvious, but you can't really separate any of it. You can't separate spirituality from physicality, right? As much as we might try, you know, in different religious circles or, or esoteric teachings, like it all does come back to the body. Everything comes back to the physicality of this three-dimensional temporal realm that we live in, in these physical bodies. And it does appear to me that when people are in their head, so to speak, there, there's a, there is a trauma response there there's a uh like a lack of safety in the body so the soul or whatever whatever you want to think of it is that part of us ejects out of the body because it's not fully safe or doesn't feel safe to be in the body so that indicates that there's something in the body that's out of alignment otherwise we would theoretically be fully embodied so that 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 tendency to eject out of the body is an indication that we have to address the body itself. Yeah, beautiful. And that's why the leading experts like Bessel van der Kolk, MD, is writing books like The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. Peter Levine, somatic experiencing. What are you doing in those modalities? You're you're actually titrating and moving the energy of, of trauma and discharging that from your nervous system so you can actually be here in this skin suit. Now, we disassociate often with trauma because it's too painful to come here. We live between the tip of our chin and the crown, and we get stuck in this thing all day, our mind, yep. and we forget we have a body. So going back to the body and mind aren't two different things. They're one. There's a bilateral feedback happening. And just think of this in, in simplicity. You think and you feel and you feel and you think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're suffering and holding the emotion of traumatic activation because of painful situations you lived in, it only makes sense that you wouldn't want to come here to this pain once again, because the pain is in the body. Mm-hmm. So the healing is the integration of the mind and body connection to be able to touch the present moment. Now, Bessel van also says trauma is an illness of not being alive in the present moment. How many people in long-term recovery, or I know a bunch, maybe you know a bunch, who are still living in the past or future all the time and, and don't feel safe in their body. And that's just a direct indication that there's the disconnect there. And if you can't feel safe in, at home in your body, where do you feel safe and at home? Right. Yeah. That, and that's, that brings up the whole point of wherever you go, there you are, right? Like wherever you go, there you are. And you're not going to be able to take a a long enough vacation to the tropics or Hawaii or Costa Rica or wherever you go. You you have you are dealing with you every step of the way. And that's that's really what I think the point of this whole thing is about. And so I'd like to ask you, what are some really practical um, tactics or strategies that you employ either with yourself or with your clients to actually do this self-regulation? Because right now somebody's listening to this and it's like, they're nodding their head. They may have even heard similar things and they're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I'm ready to experience that. How can we help people actually have a felt experience? Yeah. Beautiful. Felt experience is is great. That's great. Great terminology. Love it. The first thing I want to say is to create and build a relationship with your breath. Your breath is medicine. Your breath is just as powerful as a Valium. You have a pharmacy available to you inside your body when you learn how to use it. Now, for example, going back to the polyvagal theory is in the polyvagal theory, you have what's, what's called the ventral break right above the diaphragm. So what does a brake do on a car? It slows it down. So if you're all going through the day and you're spinning out and you're anxious and you're, you're full of energy and, and, and you know, you're dysregulated and not doing so well, 
the first step is to is to pause, is to slow down, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is to begin to notice that you're spun out and begin to connect with your breath. Now you can do the, a simple breath, such as a ventral vagal breath, deep inhale through the nose, purse your lips like you're breathing out of a straw and let the air out really, really slow. Deep inhale through the nose, letting out really slow through the mouth. And what you're doing with this is ventral vagal breathing is you're accessing that vagal break on the, on the, on the diaphragm. On, on, in, in, on the top of the diaphragm and you're literally slowing down that activation in the nervous system. So the first step I say is, is connecting with your breath, right? I healed myself and had a profound spiritual experience by the breath and meditation. So meditation is another practice, you know, mindfulness, the terminology is being thrown all around. You have mindfulness, mindfulness, this mindfulness, that well, Mindfulness is really healing, and I'll tell you why. Mindfulness interrupts that that negative bilateral communication that's going on within you. So mindfulness allows you to have a choice in the moment on how you're responding to life, including what's here in your body. Mm -hmm. Without that self-awareness, you are just on autopilot. Mm-hmm. So we have to begin to practice self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And we can do this by connecting with the breath. And you could do it by, you know, walking meditation. If you can't sit down, if the monkey mind is too rambunctious right now. But we have to begin to slow down and reconnect to what's here. Another great practice is So you receive 70% of your information through the sense door of seeing. So what if we just slow down for a moment and begin to just let the eyes just take the lead in your environment? So now switching the focus to what's actually here. And when you do that and you allow the eyes to literally just take the lead and begin to absorb what's here in your present moment, that has a direct effect on how you feel inside because you're beginning to connect with maybe the blue sky, maybe the spring blossoms that are here, maybe the beautiful green trees that might be present to you. And you can begin to practice orientation. And that's really the foundation of the beginning of healing from trauma is beginning to access and find the stabilization and increasing the bandwidth and the inner resilience. So when you're ready to do a piece of work that entails processing or bringing up something difficult from the past, you have the capacity to be able to hold that in your nervous system. And a good practitioner only gives you little bite-sized chunks. You don't heal trauma by looking it in the eye. Heal trauma by by looking uh, by 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 pieces by taking pieces mm-hmm. and and moving through it slowly, yeah. but creating the self awareness and the ability to touch into your present moment surroundings is crucial. It's imperative. In fact, to, I'm a guy of quote as you can tell. There's a quote by either Peter or Besso, and he says, uh, "Mindfulness is a cornerstone." in the healing of trauma. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's, that's really good. <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's definitely a, there's a pause point on my part here, just taking all that in. And that's, that's appropriate because really what you're talking about is using the breath to create a pause or a pattern interrupt in the interpretation of the experience and the actual experience itself. So what I mean by that is that you can think or you can, um, a good example is like, say you have a lot of overwhelm or there's anxiety or there's different thought forms arising and you're having a physiological response in the form of uh, emotions. And it feels like this is what's happening. 
And it's important to distinct between what something feels like and what something actually is, right? Because it can feel like I'm overwhelmed by all these things, but that may not actually be the reality. The reality may be completely different. The reality may be that nothing in my environment has actually changed except that I have an internal switch that just went into a complete sympathetic overload and I'm being brought up with all this cascade of stress hormones and cortisol and adrenaline and I'm feeling anxiety, I'm feeling overwhelmed, right? And But that feeling, if we get caught in the feeling, if we don't pattern interrupt that before it goes, it takes us over, then what, what the feeling is can easily become the reality when that's just a subjective experience, but that may not be the total objective reality, right? So how, how important is it, first of all, any comments on what I said, and how important is it to help people create pattern interrupts before that felt experience takes over? Yeah, it's very important. And I just want to put in a little note here is Stephen Porges coins the term neuroception, right? which is basically scanning the environment below consciousness for cues of safety and danger. Now, when you have a history of trauma, you bet you're scanning the environment. Who's friend or foe? but this happens below consciousness. So beginning to recognize that that scanning is happening takes presence. So for his model, it would be the first step would be to recognize the, the first hour of the four hours to the polyvagal theory. The second hour would be to respect the adaptive response you're having in the moment because you're triggered and it's probably triggering something from your past and it, the present feels like the past, but it may not be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right. So we have to respect it because, or we can be, have a lot of self-judgment. Oh, I'm, I'm this and I'm that and I'm fucked up or something's wrong with me. What am I having this again? Or I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having this reaction and what's, you know, and, and to respect that that's an adaptive response. The third step is to regulate. So to begin to use that breath to interrupt that response to find the ease and balance in your nervous system. So once again, we're moving from the subcortical, unaware places where trauma is, is perceived and the limbic reactivity. And now we're slowing down and connecting with the breath to now get our frontal lobes on board. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then once we do, the fourth hour is we can restory, which means a reframe, which means I can touch back. I can touch into that moment that feels like I'm going to lose it or I'm disconnected and I can actually get myself back up the autonomic ladder and to reconnect with, with the higher cortical part of my brain, sense of agency uh, or, you know, executive function, social engagement, decision-making, all that, which is so vital to addiction I mean, addiction is the repetition compulsion. You have to be able to break it. And it takes presence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it took me a lot of suffering, bro, to come to that realization, even 10 years into recovery. But as I share this quote a lot, all sickness is homesickness, all healing is self-healing, a journey back home to your true self, mm -hmm. which is that wholeness that's already here, right? And being able to be the observer and compassionate witness of your experience rather than becoming it. Right, exactly. 
Right, exactly. Becoming the observer, becoming the witness of the experience without becoming the experience itself. So in other words, not identifying with the experience. So one experience could be that I'm observing that I'm having sensations of anxiety arise versus I'm anxious, right? Like, the, and, and it's like, it could seem like kind of just semantics, but those two distinctions are really important because one puts you in control and one starts to put you out of control, right? Love so, that, man. Right, like I'm anxious. Okay, got it. Like, and that could be, that could be one version of an observation. Like, okay, I'm, I'm anxious, but, but a, a higher version would be that I'm observing the sensations of anxiety arising in my body. Cause now it's not even, I'm not even my body. It's my body. I'm observing what's happening in my body versus that I even think that I'm my body. So it kind of gives us extra kind of like bird's eye view on the chessboard of whatever the experience is. And, and, and granted, that's not as if that's easy to do. This is very challenging work to do. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the stars had to align for me to get there, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's incredible philosophy. Like it's spot on perfect philosophy, but then to employ it in our moment by moment experience, I think um, probably the last place I want to go with you here in this, this talk, and it's been absolutely incredible. It's been such a, a rich, deep dive in, um, in just an hour's time. One of the, um, uh, I almost lost my train of thought here. Um, oh yeah, this is it. So one of the things I was sharing with a client yesterday, because she was going through a lot of, a lot of these, you know, needing a pattern interrupt, needing a new approach to the, the stress response that, that her body had adapted to had become normalized to. So it would show up like a pattern, this overwhelm sensation and what I was explaining to her was that what I think you need to do is you need to set up rituals or anchor points in your day multiple times a day where you self-regulate. You take 10 diaphragmatic breaths first thing in the morning, take 10 diaphragmatic breaths at noon, take 10 diaphragmatic breaths before you go to bed. If you can just do those minimal things, you're going to be setting up uh, uh, new reference points, new anchor points for your nervous system, and it's going to make those onsets of the patterning of stress, it's going to minimize those progressively. So it becomes more manageable, right? So there, there's some so, so what I'm getting at is like, the self soothing thing, the self regulating thing to me has two different components, it has a management system where we actually have to be proactive, where we actually have to anticipate that we're going to feel stress. We're going to feel if we've if it's a pattern, then we can anticipate that there's going to be something that's going to trigger that response. So we can't just wait for it, right? And that's what most of us do. We're we're reactive. So we're waiting for something to happen before we do something about it. So there's kind of like the the proactive kind of preparation to manage the energy. And then there's the response versus reaction. When something does happen, can we respond versus react? I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Yeah. So I think whenever you, whenever you can begin to start practicing self-regulation is going to is going to support you for when those situations arise that feel overwhelming okay overwhelm starting to come on i know what to do i have to pause i connect with my breath i feel my feet on the floor right i reach out to another person who i trust who i can talk with i take a moment to pause and listen to the birds in the blue sky now i did this for years when i when i say this i i i shit you not i had to do this coupled with meditation practice, coupled with neurofeedback, coupled with, um, you know, somatic experiencing, trauma healing, because I snapped my nervous system at the end. I, I broke it. I, I, was, I, I was completely trashed. So I know if, if I can do this where anybody's at, they can do it. And yes, it takes initiative. It takes intentionality. And over time, when you begin to build that window of tolerance or you begin to strengthen you know, that resiliency inside, you can handle more stress 
per se. Mm -hmm. When something actually comes on, you'll know what to do. Once again, that's cultivating that sense of agency in your nervous system. That's cultivating self-regulation. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. This has been uh, this has been incredible. This has really been the perfect the perfect way to kick off the new interview series for this podcast and the new brand centering around the addiction free lifestyle. Um, I'm glad that it was you to kick us off here. This was an incredible deep dive. And I know we're only scratching the surface. There's so much more to dive into. So why don't you share with everybody your podcast, how to find you? um all that good stuff yeah thanks for having me too ronnie this has been epic i know both of us are are here um in this arena of addiction really to support and um awaken the the recovery community i i think i'm um, part of my work your work is to support the shift in consciousness amongst the recovery community. Mm. And that's what we need is we need consciousness. We need awareness. We need to awaken to the power within us that becomes the gatekeeper of our sense store and becomes the best relapse prevention is your own consciousness. Mm -hmm. And this is the journey. This is the journey. So thanks for having me. You can find me at Mike Gavoni, M-I-K-E-G-O-V-O-N-I.com. You can find me on um, my podcast is The Healing Beyond Recovery Podcast. And you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at uh, Mike Gavoni. Beautiful, brother. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank all of you for joining us. And we will catch you on the next episode of the Addiction Free Lifestyle Podcast. Much love. Awesome, dude.